Well, life uh, can be tough. Uh, that sometimes is an understatement, right? Uh, we, we go through life, and, and every once in a while, there are crises that arise in our life. Uh, sometimes those crisis moments happen not because we have done anything. We could probably look at our area of the world uh, over the last couple of weeks and months and kind of see that. Uh, we see it in the victims of the hurricanes that have been plaguing uh, the Caribbean. Uh, maybe we see it in, in Houston with the flooding. We see it in Florida. We see it in Mexico. We see it uh, in the islands there where these people are in this moment of crisis. And it's not because they've done anything. It's simply because they live where they live. Uh, maybe we see it a little bit in the Pacific Northwest that has all these fires that are just ravaging uh, the countryside. And, and maybe it's not necessarily affecting a ton of homes, but it's definitely affecting uh, business there, right? And people are not getting paid and not able to work. And they're in this crisis moment in their lives, not because they have done anything, but simply because of where they live. Or maybe we could look this week with Mexico and Puerto Rico, or Costa Rica. Uh, we see the earthquakes that, that have left over 200 people dead and them still searching for some. And, and they're victims in the midst of this crisis, not because they have done anything, but because of where they live. Now, sometimes crisis does arise in our life, and it is because of what we've done. Maybe a careless word that we've said to a friend has left us estranged. Uh, maybe an action that we have taken that, that, that was sinful ha has caused difficulties between me and my spouse. Maybe... Maybe something we've done has caused this crisis that we're in the midst of. And so whatever it is, whatever this is happening in our lives, when life gets tough, what are we to do? When life is tough because we've lost loved ones, when life is tough because we've lost our jobs and we don't know where the next meal is coming from, when life is tough because of sin in our lives, what do we do? It's always a tough question to ask, and I think it's uh, answered in the section of Psalm 119 that we're going to look at today. Uh, for just a short section of this massive psalm, the psalmist will just discuss sorrow and weariness and what to do when those tragedies hit. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 119. We're going to start in verse 25 today and just look uh, at the section that's called Daleth. Uh, all these begin with that letter D uh, in English, not necessarily in Hebrew. And so this is what he says, starting in verse 25. It says, I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I give an account of my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. decrees. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts, that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Sometimes I think life leaves us clinging to dust. This is what the psalmist opens up this section saying, I am laid low in the dust. And it's a Hebrew idiom that doesn't really translate too well into English. 
And so I just want us for a moment to kind of understand uh, what he is saying here. I want us to first work, look at the word dust. Dust uh, is one of those things that we don't really think too much about, but for the Hebrews, uh, it, it carried a weight of meaning. I mean, when we think of dust, we think of, you know, dust, right? And, and, and yes, sometimes the way they used the word, that's what they meant. Uh, but other times they used it to kind of express two different ideas. One of them is the idea of a multitude. If you've ever been uh, to Colorado, you know that you'll notice once you get up into the mountains, something very in particular. That is, uh, especially if it's not been raining, how dusty the place is. You can feel the difference. I, I can feel it as my throat begins to get dry. I can taste it in my mouth. You blow your nose and it comes out black because of how much dust is in the air. Dust is everywhere. I mean, it's a thing that, that kind of covers our surfaces and we have to kind of wipe it down. Maybe we think of dust uh, as we're driving down the gravel road and we look behind our car and there's this, this dust cloud appearing. Dust for the Israelites included that concept of what you had to wipe down and all that stuff, but it included every, something else. It included like the loose piece of, pieces of earth. So like pebbles, what we call pebbles, they would call dust as well. And dust covers the earth. There's a lot of it. The Israelites, they lived in a land that was very dusty, that where they had a rainy season, and after the rainy season, it was dry. And, and like Colorado, it was dusty. And it was everywhere. And it, it dust, underst for them, they understood to mean a multitude of things. That's why when God promises Abraham to have that he's going to have children, God likens it to the dust of the earth. In Genesis 13, 16. So dust, on the one hand, carries the idea of multitude, uh, but it also carries the idea of sorrow of sadness, of, of not everything being right in this world. And we think about it for a little bit, we can kind of understand this as, as babes, they start off uh, on the ground, right? They lie there, maybe roll over, they start to crawl, they eventually begin to walk, and as adults, it's very rare to find us just sitting on the ground. We have chairs, we sleep in beds, if we're going to go on a picnic, we take a, a, a blanket and we spread out the blanket and sit on the blanket, not on the ground. And for the Israelites, it was much the same way. And so to, to find yourself in dust was to show that not everything is right. It, it's like a humbling experience to sit there like a child, like a babe, and wallow in misery. The Israelites, when they were saddened by something they would take dust and they would place it on their heads and they would walk around mourning with the dust all over them and people would know just by their appearance that something was wrong and it's in this concept this idea of something not being right is where the psalmist is going with this idea i am laid low to dust uh, that word lay low, it, it's a very interesting word. It's interesting that the NIV will translate it this way. Uh, the word literally means to cling. It's the idea of, of sticking two things together to where they are inseparable. It'd be like duct tape, right? 
You take duct tape, put it on something, and the duct tape's not going to move, hopefully. All right, and that's kind of what this idea is. He is duct taped to the earth to the point that he has no strength to get up. And there are some times in life where a man faces crisis moments, where he is like duct tape to the earth, and he is unable to move. He doesn't have the strength to take another step. How often does this happen in our lives? I was talking to a lady in first service uh, earlier this week. Uh, we were talking about the amount of loss we've had in our church. Not necessarily church members, but members, family members who have died. And over the last three months even, there's been more than I can count on my, my hands. We're in this crisis moment. Where sometimes it makes sense that it was a loved one who uh, was older in age and we rejoice that the suffering that they had is no longer happening now. But sometimes it's inexplainable. A child, a son, in the prime of their lives who, who just are no longer here. And sometimes when these things happen in our lives, we are stuck to the earth. Sometimes life leaves us clinging to the dust of the earth. Sometimes life leaves us weary from sorrow. Uh, verse 28, I believe, says that, my soul is weary with sorrow. And there are some times in life where, where we are just, uh, not just physically unable to move, but we are mentally unable to take another step. We are victims to our minds. The, the word there for weary, it's a very interesting word because uh, it only appears three times in the entirety of the Old Testament. And if you ever do anything with ancient languages, one thing that you'll learn very quickly is the more examples we have, the better we understand what the word means. And so only having three examples makes this word very difficult to translate. To look at the word for its base meaning, it means to drip, to melt. It's like a, a, a leaky faucet, if you will, in the kitchen whose mechanics are made to, to hold the water back, but for some reason something has gone wrong and it drips, drips, drips. In our lives, we are not meant to experience sorrow on a deep level, and there's something inside us that when that sorrow hits, we melt. We become unable to hold it back. And the sorrow that is being experienced here, it, there's three different Hebrew words for sorrow. One uh, emphasizes the humbling aspect that affliction causes. All right, so this is like, I, I realize that affliction comes and I'm like, I'm nothing. Okay? Uh, the, the second one kind of describes the pain that is associated with affliction. Someone's afflicting you and it's painful. But the third one, the one that's used here, 
is the mental anguish that affliction brings. And there are times in life that we are weary with sorrow, where we are just entrapped in our minds. Uh, By nature, I'm an introvert. Uh, I become an extrovert during church, but I am an introvert by nature. I like to be by myself. And, and one of the problems with that is I tend to, to overthink things. If I'm going to have a very important conversation, I, I, over, I play the conversation in my head like a hundred times before I have it. Uh, and if it's a big conversation, I always play it to the worst possible solution. Right, so if my wife and I are about to have a big conversation, I always play it out to where uh, I end up on the couch for like three weeks and she doesn't talk to me during that time period. Now, now for, it's a problem because every time we actually have the conversation, it's way better than that. It does, I don't end up on the couch usually, okay? All right, and so that's kind of a, a problem that I have uh, when it comes to overthinking things. And I think when sorrow hits us, and we don't have a, a support group. We tend to overthink what's happening. We tend to replay in our minds, what could we have done different? And in situations where, where we are facing crisis moments, not because we've done anything, it's very difficult. Could I have moved? Could I have taken a different job? Could I have done this? Could I have done that? Well, there's not really a whole lot you could have done. But in situations where the crisis is there because of something I've done, because of sin in my life, it's worse. What if I had not said that? What if I had not chosen to do this sin over here? What if? And we go through this what ifs to the point that we just just have no strength left to even think. And so what's being described in these opening verses is this idea of a man who not only doesn't have strength to take another step, he doesn't have the willpower, the mindset to even think about taking another step. And when we're in the midst of crisis, sometimes that's us. Sometimes we don't know what is next. And so when we're in those moments, when we are unable to move, when we're crying out to God, revive us, when we're crying out to God, give us strength, what does it we need to do? What happens in those moments? The psalmist's answer is very simple. His answer is this. God gives us strength to face tomorrow. When we are in the midst of sorrow, when we are described as being stuck to the ground, when we are weary and we cannot think or take another step, God will give us strength to face tomorrow. Uh, The psalmist says that God will answer. See, our God is not a silent God. Our God does not sit back and look at his children and say, oh, well, too bad, figure it out yourself. Our God answers. Our God wants to comfort us. Our God wants to come alongside us and give us the strength that we need. In verse 26, the psalmist hints at this God that answers. He says, I give an account of my ways and you answer me. 
And sometimes when, when we want God to answer, we have to first start with giving an account of who we are. When we're in the midst of crisis because of something that we have done, because of sin in our lives, then we need to give an account of it. This is the New Testament idea of confession, admitting our sins. In John, First uh, John, he write, John writes this. He says, "If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness." And when we're in the midst of crisis because of our sins, we need to confess them and seek forgiveness. And our God, He is faithful. He will answer. And he will give us strength. Sometimes we may ask the question, why does God need us to tell him what we've done wrong? Isn't he the all-knowing God? Doesn't he know what we've already done? And the answer to that is yes. He knows even the things that you don't want to tell other people. But a lot of this confession centers around not God, not making him suddenly aware of something that we're hiding, but rather it's about us. If we think that we're perfect, we will never change. If we admit that we have a problem, then we can begin to change. And so confessing our sins is admitting that we do not line up with the way that God wants us to live our lives. It means that we recognize that there is something that has to change in us, and we need to give an account of our ways to get that forgiveness. But beyond giving account of our sins, I think this is talking also about those situations in our lives that, that we are facing crisis, not because we have done anything, but simply because where we're at in life. Not everything that we face, not everything that brings us low, not everything that makes us feel like we can't take another step is because of something we've done. We shouldn't be scouring our, our lives for a secret hidden sin that we weren't aware of to try to confess it to God to make life better. We need to just in those moments recognize our faithfulness to give an account of the things that we have done for God. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with telling God, God, I have done this for you. I've done this for you. I've done this for you. If anything, it gives us strength to know that God is faithful. And if we are faithful to him, he will be faithful to us. So we need to give an account of our ways, whether that's our sinful lives or our faithfulness to him. And God answers in those moments and God gives us strength. The, the last three verses of this section of Psalm 119 uh, he kind of talks about a commitment factor that, that's required of us. So our God wants to give strength, but he wants to give strength to those who are fully committed to him. Second uh, Chronicles 16.9 says this. He says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. See, our God is looking for people to strengthen. God wants to come alongside people and lift them up and to give them the ability to move forward. But he also wants faithfulness. Verse 30 of this psalm uh, talks a little bit about this. He says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. It's kind of in contrast uh, to verse 29 where he talks about the deceitful ways and he says, God, don't let me walk in this way. 
So there's really two paths of life that we can take. We can take the deceitful way that is groundless and baseless in truth, or we could take the way of faithfulness, the way that God desires us to go. Our God, above anything else, wants us to be faithful to him. In Habakkuk 2, 4, uh, we read this. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person, the righteous person, will live by faithfulness. God wants us to be faithful to him. God wants us to follow his path in everything that we do. He wants us to set his law in front of us and that be the way that we are going. He wants us to follow the way of righteousness. And when we do that, when we choose to follow God, God gives us strength when we feel like we can't move. In verse 31, he says that I will hold fast to your statutes. Uh, that, that word hold fast is the same word uh, at the beginning of this section where he says I am laid low. It's this idea of clinging. And no longer does God want you to cling to the dust, but God wants you to cling to his way of living. To be stuck, to be duct taped to it. And if you are willing to cling to God's way of living, God will give you strength when you feel like you can't move any further. When you feel like you're sorrowful to the point of melting. In verse 32, he says, I will run in the path of God's commandments. It's an excitement. It's a desire. Not only am I going to walk it, I'm going to take full off into it. And the reason why he's able to do this, he says, is because you have given me understanding, something that he asked for in verse 27. And sometimes in life, we don't understand why something is happening. We're left wondering, what, God, are you doing here? And while we may never know exactly what is going on, we can understand that our God is a loving God, that our God is a compassionate God. And if we can understand that God and everything that he does is good, then no matter what we're facing, we can continue to go on. We can have strength because we know that God is not doing something to harm us, but God is doing something to build us up. We need to be committed. We need to be faithful. We need to be excited about following God's ways. We need to be clinging to how he wants us to live. And then when we're facing these moments that come upon us where we're stuck in the dust, where we are just weary and trapped in our minds and we cannot think straight and we cannot walk another step, God, being faithful, will give us strength to face tomorrow. Howard Rutledge uh, was a pilot who understood this. Uh, He fought during the Vietnam War, and his plane was shot down uh, over the North Vietnam area. He parachuted to this little bitty town uh, in the middle of nowhere, and as he landed, uh, the people there attacked him, stripped him naked, took him to uh, the enemy army, and he was a POW for seven years. For five of those years, he was a... Uh, put into solitary confinement, often chained in uh, excruciating uh, ways. Uh, 
said he that he sat in his own waist for many days upon end, uh, that rats the size of cats would often run through his little area that he was uh, chained up in. And he said that the soldiers, the North Vietnam, they understood that the best way to, to kind of uh, break a person was to break their spirit. And he writes in a book that, that he saw many of his friends, uh, many of his colleagues being taken out after days without end uh, in solitary confinement and just end up in a fetal position and die because they had nothing to live for. He said in those moments, he was searching for those big questions. Why is this happening? Why, why are these things happening? He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a minister. All he had was the things that he learned in Sunday school. He said him and, and some of the other POWs, as they're in these solitary confinement, they would have just seconds of being able to talk each day. And in those seconds, they would start to talk to each other and try to help each other memorize and remember pieces of Scripture. He said that all the POWs there, they, they knew some of the big ones, right? Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer, John 3.16. But it was the other ones that they had to piece together together. And as they're doing this, they, they ended up realizing that they were able to, to find strength to get to the next day. He writes in his book this, Scriptures and hymns might seem boring to some, but it was the way we conquered our enemy and overcame the power of death around us. He understood that he could just lose hope and be like many of the other POWs who just laid on the ground and died. Or he could get strength to face the next day. And as he faithfully tried to remember the few things that he remembered, God gave him that strength to move forward. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are weary from your crisis, if you don't know where you're to go next, when you don't have strength, come to Jesus. He has a load is far easier than anything that you're carrying right now. He is the one that gives us strength to face tomorrow. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we're grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus who paid our sins on Calvary. Father, we stand amazed that no matter what we're facing, you are there beside us. We stand amazed that you just surround us with your love and that when we feel like we can't take another step, when we feel like we can't even think straight, that you are there to give us strength, that you allow us to face tomorrow. Lord, give us the strength that we need to do that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.